Achieving financial independence has a good ring to it, doesn't it? What if reaching that stage of your life was actually more within reach than you thought? Our guest today tells you where to start, including his four pillars of wealth creation. Come check it out. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Eman, and welcome back to the show. This time, we cover achieving financial independence with Scott Trench, president of BiggerPockets.com and author of the popular book, Set for Life, Dominate Life, Money, and the American Dream. This book is superb on helping anyone interested in making the shift from being a debt hoarder to living the freedom dream. What that means for physicians is translates into leaving medical school with a ton of student debt. Literally, my client has an average of 283000 and then possibly thousands of dollars in consumer debt. Let's be real. You need to be able to pay the bills while you're making the little bucks. But some of this debt is avoidable and some isn't. So adding Scott's four pillars of wealth creation, which he details in the show, you can set up a life that's financing the happy life you need, but eventually leading to the lifestyle of freedom you want. It's a really cool show. It should give you a ton of reasons to get rid of the justifications of your spending behavior and adjust accordingly to finally achieve whatever you may deem as being financially independent. Let's let Scott explain how. Enjoy the show. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Huge fan and really excited to have you here. I'm very excited to be here as well. This is going to be a, a very fun conversation. Yeah. So I know we chat a little bit offline on the average kind of physician, but let's let's detail out maybe who we're talking to and we're going to go right at it and just say, you know, how can these guys achieve and gals achieve financial independence? Sure. So, you know, if I'm painting the picture of the person listening to this show, mm-hmm. in my mind, and let me know if I'm wrong here, need any correction, but I'm thinking of somebody who's between probably 27 and 32-ish in terms of their starting position. This is when you start, you graduate med school, you finish your residency, and you're you're finally starting to earn the big bucks, whether that's 175K as a pediatrician, or if that's $350,000 as an anesthesiologist, I don't know. And then you're graduating with a commensurate amount of debt for this stuff. So a couple hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt. The challenge, I think, is how does that person move towards financial freedom? And that's mm-hmm. what I want to kind of talk about. Because if you're looking for good financial habits that'll get you into a good retirement at 55, I'm not your guy. You shouldn't, I'm not yeah. a good guest for that. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in that. But if you're interested in aggressively moving toward financial freedom, that's where I kind of think that there's some fun things to think through. I'm going to bring my philosophy to bear on on this one because I have thought about this, but this is the first time I'm kind of discussing it for a doctor. Cool. You know, when I think about wealth creation, I think about four kind of pillars. First is spending as little as practical to finance your the happy lifestyle you need. Second is generating a large earned income. Third is investing your accumulated assets for greater and greater investment returns. And then fourth is entrepreneurship or the creation of assets. And and the goal of this all is to produce passive income in excess of your lifestyle needs. So uh, I know that some of your listeners have referenced my book in the past. I'm very flattered to hear that, and that's awesome. My work, what I focused on is really helping that median American, $50,000 a year, maybe $75,000 a year, get to that first couple hundred thousand dollars in investable liquidity 
which you know there's a lot of big differences between how you achieve that goal as a doctor than as a marketing specialist too at a at a Fortune 500 company, right? Of course. And the big differences are going to be the income and the debt side of things, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously the the debt is is a big issue. You know, they tend to come out with more than two hundred thousand dollars of debt. My average client's got two hundred eighty three thousand of debt. So you know, they're starting at a little bit disadvantage during residency. They are making that average that average income. They're at the fifty, maybe sixty thousand dollar mark, but they know that they're coming out making to two fifty three hundred thousand. So maybe we let's talk through there and and just go like, where do they start? So let's say that you're entering residency, right? And presumably up to that point, you know, a question for you is what's the mix of personal debt versus student loan debt in that 280,000? Yeah. So it's 280 is all student debt. And I would say the average person coming out is 15 to 20,000 of consumer debt. Okay. So, so you go to med school and you accumulate, Hey, there's a hefty tuition bill. And then there's also, I'm charging things on the credit card and coming up with $20,000 in consumer debt. Throughout residency, they're trying to do it. And whether it's, you know, interviews and things like that, but usually when, when they finish, that's typically what I'm seeing is somewhere in that 15 K personal and 200 plus in, in student debt. And do we feel that that's avoidable debt or is that kind of necessary? Is that, Hey, this is the bare minimum I need to do to survive and eat my ramen noodles through med school. Or is that you know, I'm going to make a lot of money in a few years, so I can spend a little frivolously here. I think maybe a little bit of both. And I'd say it actually goes with family dynamic. Like, are you married and have kids and maybe mm. one spouse stays at home? It's unavoidable pretty much at that point. Gotcha. It, or close to it. I don't see many cases of where they're coming out and they're like, you know, driving Range Rovers and had thrown all this, you know, into a personal debt and Teslas or whatever. But of course, if you're single and you have 25, 30,000 of credit card debt, you probably was avoidable at that point. Gotcha. And then then when you move into residency, now you're making 50-ish a year? Yeah, for anywhere from three to, let's say, six years if they end up doing a fellowship. And do most of of your doctors, are they able to start paying down debt while on that residence salary, or do they accumulate more debt while earning that? Their student debt's increasing because normally they're doing some type of income-driven repayment. So if they're borrowing $200,000 and they're making, you know, $200 payment, like that $200 is growing, I can give you Example, so when my wife finished med school, she did all the right things too. Like she went to in-state tuition, basically lived at home, took out 120 within five years. And that was just us going through residency and not making that much money. And then fellowship where she still didn't make that much, even though I was making some, you know, in order to pay our bills and things, it ballooned to like 180. And this is just trying to get by. You're not making the payments because they're too large, and the interest is compounding to make the total debt, debt balance larger. And this is pretty typical for doctors: is you go through yeah. residency, the balance balloons, and then you begin attacking it as soon as you get that first. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know what the word is, but real job, the real doctor. Yeah, it's a tending job. I mean, that's that's <laughs> yeah. where it was. Like for my situation, I'm happy to like pick on myself. We could have easily made those increased payments, but we decided to actually take it and invest. And I actually invested in real estate. And we first bought a primary, then we sold it, took all that, invested actually in rentals. And I decided not to pay it off. So while it was kind of compounding, I was sheltering it in different places. Most people don't typically do that, whether they don't think to do it or they or don't know to do it or just can't do it. So I, you know, I would say that's not typical. But let's just say the typical resident comes out just about to start making bigger payments on their student debt, the real actual payments. And they maybe have ten or 15000 let's call it unavoidable consumer debt. Okay. Gotcha. So from that position, you know, if we look at those four pillars, right, how do you invest your accumulated assets? How do you do entrepreneurship? How do you spend a little and how do you earn a lot? Right? Mm -hmm. Well, 
it becomes to me a remarkably simple equation at this point, right? You're a doctor. You're not going to be going through all of that and then starting a business on the side. You know, very few people mm-hmm. are going to actually do that, right? And you have nothing to invest, right? So you yep. can't get a large return on your invested assets, right? So your path forward, at least for the initial few years, is very straightforward, in my opinion, which is simply spend at the level that you were as a resident for the next three to four to five years and pay off your debt and begin accumulating a meaningful amount of liquidity. Mm-hmm. The difference between a doctor and the median income earner that I kind of really talk about is that median income earner needs to invest 50 to 100K to make a meaningful investment relative to their financial position, right? As a physician earning $250,000, you're going to need to invest $250,000 to begin making an investment that will produce a return that is meaningful relative to your financial position, right? If I'm earning $50,000 a year, and I purchase a rental property investment, right? For I put 50K down on a $200,000 property and I make three, $400 a month. That's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. If I buy a $50,000 house that produces $100 a month, that's a pain in my rear. The physician's going to feel that same way about the $200,000 house. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So they're going to have to purchase the 800 to a million dollar real estate property. For example, if you're interested in real estate, right? Or you're going to have to think about how do I invest 100 or 200? And how do I invest? a hundred thousand dollars a year as a physician into index funds. Now I'm starting to make something that's a little interesting, even from a passive perspective, right? If I can assume a five to 10%, the compound growth rate of the, the market, I always assume is approximately 10% over a very long period of time. If you invest in index very long. <laughs> prior to inflation. So inflation will knock that down. Of course, it's like 9.89 since 1928 or something. So I always round up to 10, just yeah, freezing. That's all good. But you know, you're going to have to make a hundred thousand dollar investment for that to be meaningful. So in my view, if I'm thinking from a physician standpoint, it's very clear. It's how do I live a really good life on a upper middle class income? I think some level. people are going to sit here yeah. and, and be thinking, you know, like, Scott, that sounds great. I'm trying to figure out how to actually get to that first 100K. They still have that problem. Like, yes, they have extremely high earning potential, little assets, right? And that's why, you know, some of that insurance protection that we've referenced in previous shows, like, helps them. It's not the end all be all. It's definitely not an investment. It's that protection. But some of them are probably sitting here thinking like, how do I even get to that first hundred K? Okay. So the situation is you're a doctor, you're making $250,000. It's your first job. It's day one. How do I get to a hundred thousand dollars in investable liquidity? Right? Mm -hmm. Well, so the trade-off here then is one, let's say that you're, you can save 50% of your income, right? Because if, if a median household could live on Fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, and you're living off a hundred thousand dollars. You can you can make it on the remaining portion. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So let's assume a fifty percent savings rate. So that gives you after tax, let's say eighty thousand dollars a year to play with. That can go to advance your financial position. And what that's actually saying though is they're getting a hundred percent raise, right, from what they were just making in residency. Yes. Now you're letting you're giving them basically a hundred percent raise. Yeah, Continue. you're having eighty thousand dollars after tax with which to invest in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And you can invest by paying down your debt or by purchasing income producing assets and paying the minimums on your debt, mm-hmm. right? Some portion of that 80, let's say you're playing with 80, right? How much would the minimum debt service on these loans be at that point if you have 250000 in debt? I mean, your payment's at least a couple grand. So one, two grand, three grand? One, two grand, 2500 two something like that. Okay, so 2500 So that means 30 of that right off the top is gone. gone. Right. Yep. That's being used to pay down some of the principal, I presume, as well as the interest. Right. Yes. So now you have 50K left. Right. And the question here is do you store that in the bank account and begin buying 
income producing assets that have the potential to appreciate or do you pay down your debt? Mm-hmm. And then that question becomes, what's the interest rate on the debt? And what do you think you can get elsewhere, right? So, so let's look at it. Um, my wife's was six and three quarters, so six point seven five. Okay, so so nothing in life is easy, right? Nothing. That is perfectly in the middle of like of this gray zone where it's no fun either way, right? It's pretty bold to say I'm going to get significantly better returns than six point seven five percent guaranteed, yep. right? Which is what you're getting if you pay that down. But at the same time, it's also painfully low relative to what you think your your potential might be. And I guess that's where it comes down to how much extra work are you willing to or capable of putting in? How much risk are you willing to take on? So, man, this is a fun thought experiment. I yeah. hope this is helpful. for. No, it's, for I think it's good. Folks. And it's funny because uh, you sound almost like a planner going, well, it depends. That's like the default for us is the advisor joke is, well, it depends. But it, it really mm-hmm. does. I mean, you look at how it goes. One thing you mentioned, and I, I think we should clarify it in the very beginning here, is income producing property. So if you could maybe tell someone, what income producing properties, because they might be thinking it's their primary residence and all that. So let's just give them a real baseline of what that is first. I would say in the context of moving toward financial freedom, right? We're, ta- we're talking about an asset in the real estate space. This is an asset that you intend to use to produce income capable of supporting your lifestyle or that you intend to sell at some period of time and then spend that money to fund your lifestyle or otherwise invest, right? Mm-hmm. So I would not count a house as part of my net worth, if I was going to live in that and move toward financial freedom, right? That house only helps my ability to pursue financial freedom if I pay down the mortgage and no longer have that as an expense at all, right? That's the only way that I can really leverage any of that equity in the house in terms of moving toward financial freedom, unless I take out a loan and borrow against the equity and try to beat that spread, right? It's the same. I just take out a loan of 4% and try to invest it on something that can produce 7%. Mm -hmm. But most people in my opinion, shouldn't do that, particularly not people who are working 70, 80 hours a week. So I would say that in the context of an income producing property, that's not your house. It's a property that you purchased or own with a full understanding that you believe that that's the best way you could have invested your money to generate wealth through real estate investing rather than a luxury home, second home, vacation rental or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. Okay. So, so now we've got the concept of what, or at least the definition of what an income producing property is. Now we've, let's say, earmarked, I think, what did we decide? 50, 60K that was left over. Now, where are they at? Yeah. So, and let me take a step back here as well. Sorry. If I'm a doctor earning 250, right? Am I thinking, man, this is my entry point and I'm going to be earning 400 in three to five years? Or am I thinking, this is my baseline. I'm really not going to change much over the next five to 10 years. What's the kind of thought process behind most folks? Yeah, I think it depends on the field, right, or specialty. You know, you're in pediatrics or some subspecialty of that. You're going to stick around there and not deviate too much over the next few years. If you're taking an intro type job into maybe anesthesia or radiology, like you probably have some increase. I think there's also like, are you on a partnership track or not? I think it does depend. Let's just assume to make this easy, 250 is where they're at, and it's not going to deviate much from from that, you know, other than normal, maybe small bonus inflationary stuff. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering that aloud because if you're listening, that that would change my calculus a little bit. I would I would be more interested in taking some risk maybe if I knew that my income was going to dramatically climb over the next couple of years, or that was my expectation, than if I was static in that zone. Mm-hmm. Where the, oh, that's, that's a good point to that, put out. You're saying like if you're at 250 now, but you know, like, hey, everyone that's joined this is made partner. And when they made partner, it went from 250 to 450. 
I've got, even though I'm not there now, you inclined and right, everyone's different, but you inclined, you'd look at that and go, okay, well, I can afford to take more risks now because I know that this, you know, is potentially coming on the back end. I think that would be a thought that I would I entertain in, the, okay. in that situation. That would change some of the the calculus for me one way or the other on that. But so let's say let's say you're in a former position though, at, and you're going to earn a similar amount every year. Yep. At six point seven five percent, as a doctor, you're smart, but you have no time. And real estate, I don't think, is necessarily a game where the most intelligent guy wins all the time. I'd actually I don't know with that. I think I, I've met a lot we, of... We've won several times, so I, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I think that I would want to hit a pretty solid... If I was going to invest in real estate and I'm working that many hours and I don't have much time, I'd want to get the education I could and then make a pretty solid single as my investment. Not try to go for a home run that's going to take a lot of rehab or bet too much on appreciation or any of that. I would kind of go want to go for a fairly stable property in a reasonable area where I'm not going to get the, the cash flow king, but I'm also not going to have my likelihood of unexpected problems is a little bit lower maybe because I got a different class of tenant. And, so and tell, them what a, tell them what a stable property is in your mind. Me personally, I own more value add properties, right? So I go to an area that I think is transitioning and going to where there's going to be see dramatic price increases. And I try to buy a property that's like the worst one on the block, fix it up and then put a tenant in there and then ride the wave over the next couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. I buy so that I won't lose today, but I have to do some work to get that thing ready. And then I'll hopefully add some value in there. You know, nowadays my position has changed. I now am running bigger pockets here. So this is more of a bigger demand on my time. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to be looking at properties that are already in more stable areas, maybe like a single family or even maybe a duplex, but like that's that's pretty nice. It's going to attract a very quality tenant that's mm-hmm. well-maintained. And some of the value is getting sucked out of that by the guy ahead of me who maintained the property really well and is selling a stable turnkey property rather than a mess. <laughs> mm-hmm. You make a lot of money when you clean up a mess. You don't make a lot of money when you buy something that's that's stable. So I think that would be part of my thinking. And then the question is, is am I going to get enough of a spread between the return from that property and the 6, 6.75% interest rate that I've got on my student loan debt? Mm-hmm. Right. And frankly, I would think the answer is probably no. Okay. Because of market cycle, or do you think just in terms of just pure cash flow? I think that your typical doctor. And let me let me phrase my words very carefully here because I want to th- think through I want to put myself in the shoes of you and your your listeners yeah. on this. I have 50k to play with. And my choice is pay down my debt or buy a $200,000 duplex an hour away that produces 2 grand a month, $500 a month after expenses, 2 grand a month in rent, $500 a month in in cash flow. So I put down my 50k and I make 6 grand in cash flow next year. It's not meaningful enough, I think, relative to my overall financial position, given the amount of work and the scare, how scary it's going to be and how I got to buy 10 of these things while I'm treating patients mm-hmm. to go forward. I, I would think that my preference in that scenario might be to pay down the debt first and then after three, four, five years, come out shining with a, a neutral net worth and then begin investing the 50 to 100K bit by bit after that. I think that there's a lot less risk to that approach relative to the upside, Okay, given uh, my time allotment. I think that's I super interesting to, to hear that. Yeah. So now let's say that they said, okay, makes perfect sense. I'm going to go do, I'm going to hammer out this debt. It's gone in four years and mm-hmm. now I've got a hundred K to play with and no $2,500 student debt payment. Now would that make more sense to start looking at whether it's a SFR or single family residence or a duplex or something like that. 
now I think you've got a choice. So now it's how do I create a large portfolio and, 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 and it's really relative to your spending, right? So just because you're a doctor and you make 250K does not mean you have to replace 250K at income. You have to replace 50 or 60K, maybe 100K in income to feel very confident depending on your needs and what you're going after. So that's you're looking at a portfolio of 750 to a million and a half. I presume most doctors are not going to want to just build a $750,000 portfolio and then call it quits yeah. after everything they went through to become a doctor. And you're also assuming that so, they only want to spend yeah. like 50K in yearly expenses, right? I, I think I think that's the big thing. Is, that's is a big assumption. Gonna, so I think now it's, okay, how do I as efficiently as possible build a, a large portfolio given the constraints of my time? And I think that's where, you know, what I do personally is I, I invest partly in passive index fund investments and after-tax brokerage accounts, mm-hmm. and then the other part in real estate. And for real estate, I attempt to make one significant investment annually every 12 to 18 months. What is significant? Well, significant for me has varied over the years as my income has changed rather mm-hmm. dramatically, right? But you know, for your doctor, it's going to be a pretty consistent, maybe a more consistent amount. So I think that's when you say, hey, okay, great. How do I now come up with that 75 to 100K to buy that first two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar property leveraged four to one, make a quality decision. And at the same time, also buy some stocks and put my money in there, have it maybe an emergency fund, all that kind of stuff. And then how do I repeat that cycle, that system of investing regularly over a five, seven, 10 year period and then call it quits. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a very specific, it's an investment plan really is what you're looking at. It's one piece of that financial plan that we've referenced Mm -hmm. many times throughout the show is your investment plan. How do you want this to look? So what you're saying, by the way, I just want everyone to be clear, like we're not talking 401k money or IRA money. Whereas actually I'm assuming that that's already done. What we're looking now is the after-tax money, the money that's hit your bank account that you haven't spent. And now Scott's basically saying, you know, there's going to be some balance between a taxable account with, as you put it, index investments. And then there's going to be real estate. And now we're specifically talking income producing real estate and whether that's a single family residence or a duplex or triplex quad, whatever it might be in your area. Yeah, I get that right, Scott. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the, the understanding for the audience is that the meaningful lever in the financial model is the fact that you are earning so much money and have the capacity to live a great life like a middle to upper middle class American, and then still save 50 to 75K a year. That's the fast track to financial freedom that you benefit from through all of the incredible years and slog of hard work that you have to go through to, to become a, a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the benefit you reap at the end of this. So the key is that savings rate. The key does not shift to your investment return rate really until you pass maybe $500,000 to a million dollars in your portfolio size, right? If you're making $250,000 a year, how are you going to generate anything remotely in the ballpark of that from your investment portfolio? Well, you're not going to do that if you assume an aggressive 10% rate of return until you get to $2.5 million in personal net worth, mm-hmm. right? So for a very long time, your investments are simply not going to be the driver of your portfolio. It's going to be that inco- the difference between your income and your expenses, which can be very large. And so the idea is how do you apply that as passively as possible and then decide real estate for a doctor? Real estate's a great way to build wealth. I use it because I think it's extremely effective. Mm-hmm. As a doctor, you're not going to see the results of that unless you get lucky compounding in your favor until much later along in your portfolio creation, right? It's years five, seven, you know, if you buy one $400,000 property every 18 months as a doctor, let's walk through this. So that's two every three years. So six, nine, six years go by, you have four, nine years go by, you have six of these things, right? 
So it's only then that portfolio, leveraged as it is, is really producing a meaningful return probably in terms of cash flow and, and equity appreciation relative to what you're earning. Mm-hmm. Well, right? I mean, it, using the $500 a door, that'd be what, 3000 a month. That 36000 comes in and say you're spending 100000 that's a third of your income is already replaced by mm-hmm. six pieces of property that you've acquired over the last eight or nine years. Yep. And you're investing in real estate because you believe that you're going to get a a better return or at least a diversified return relative to the the stock market. Mm-hmm. So, but that excess, that spread, let's say you get an average 15% a year on your real estate returns using leverage, all that kind of stuff, right? That spread of 5%, if you got a hundred K invested, that's five grand a year. Again, mm-hmm. it's nice. It's not what's going to drive your position toward financial freedom very quickly, but it will in year seven, 10, 15. That's game. how you can build a, build a lot of wealth. So I would say if you're going to go into real estate as a doctor, play the long game and have in mind an approach that will allow you to scale into maybe some larger commercial properties down the line, things that will be large and meaningful rather than acquire a bunch of duplexes. Because I feel like that's not going to serve the end goal for you as well as maybe you shave six months off your whole goal at the cost of a large number of hours of your life, figuring out how to invest in real estate versus index fund investing. Yeah. You've got to have the Mm long-term prospect like mindset, I should say, in that. And one of the things that I know that people that live in high cost living areas, so like everyone out here in California, basically are buying properties based on appreciation. And mm-hmm. and then obviously you've got cash flow on one end, appreciation on the other, so maybe some hybrid in the middle. Can you go over maybe this a little bit on the risk of just buying on appreciation in a hot market, let's say, versus that sounds really boring to go invest in the Midwest or or whatever it might be that, you know, you're earning four hundred bucks a door. But maybe not as much appreciation. It's not as flashy, if you will. The game here is early financial freedom, right? How do you generate enough cash flow where you as an individual are confident in removing yourself from your profession, right? And by the way, the concept of leaving your job as a doctor is a whole other one. You should talk to a physician on fire about that one. We have. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) He articulates it really well. Like I went through all this work to become a doctor. Now I'm easily financially free because I live like a middle to upper middle class lifestyle and I have tons of excess money. I can't leave because... It's my calling. Yeah, but he gets to choose the way that you to work. And that's why I think financial independence in this setting isn't just, oh, like now we're financially independent. I'm going to stop becoming a doctor and helping people and doing all that. It's, hey, now I'm able to practice what I want, pick the shifts I want, maybe have less call or no call, you know, go to 0.5 schedule, like whatever it might be. So I think that's what we're kind of referencing here. Absolutely. That's a universal feeling amongst all of us that are interested in financial freedom. I go to work because I love it and want to be there, not because I have to be there and feel like I'm obligated Mm -hmm. and and stuck in a grind, right? That's, that makes all the difference in the world in life, just having that distinction made. And that's why we're, we're here talking about this, right? Absolutely. Um, Well, I want to actually make one point here, or at least have you make one point is the concept of income versus wealth. In the book that you, you wrote, you referenced Mike Tyson versus Dr. Dre. (laughs) Sadly, it's true. So not that funny for Mike Tyson, but if you could, you know, doctors are prone to having high incomes, but low net worth, especially when you start off so much longer behind your peers, if you will, people you went to college with that didn't go into medicine, you know, started working at 22, 23, have been working, saving and doing whatever they're doing for like 10 years before you actually are out making a, an attending meaningful salary. So if you could just kind of give us a little bit more on income versus wealth. 
a buzzword these days, the last couple of years, has been income inequality in this country, how the rich are earning all this money and none of that is going to the poor and middle class, right? So that is a problem, right? But generally speaking, and there's plenty of people who will disagree, and there's plenty of good reason to disagree, income, at least an earned income in W-2 sense, tends to go and be dispersed amongst some sort of skill and merit, some ability to produce some sort of uh, service that others are willing to pay for, right? Wealth is totally different. Wealth is, you don't have to do anything necessarily to grow wealth. Wealth is is your net worth. You earn money from your wealth, returns from your wealth, whether you show up to work or not, right? And the real problem in this country is not that a Taylor Swift earns hundreds of times what the median income earner earns in this country. The real problem is guys like Warren Buffett have literally millions, 14, I think he has like 14 million times the average net worth of the average person in this country. And that's nothing against Warren Buffett. He did a great job and is a, a very value-add investor for, his, mm-hmm. for a lifetime. But that kind of the power that one has over themselves and others is more commensurate, in my opinion, with your net worth, with your wealth, than it is necessarily with your income. As many doctors have proven over the years, income can go in one area and out right out the other, right, without anybody even knowing where it goes. Mm-hmm. Those who accumulate wealth have a very good understanding of where that is and how they're using it to influence their lives, the lives of their employees, their family, and the rest of the country through political contributions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, I, th- I think it's great. I think when we look at it, it's like they figured out how to transform their income into wealth and then to have those assets actually earn more wealth, right? More income, which they turn into more wealth. You know, it's a, it's a function of understanding your spending. I think I've said it so many times. It's, it's so nice to hear someone else say it, that it's not investment return. It's savings rate that matters the most in the beginning. It's completely true. If you don't have money to invest, it doesn't matter what you make. I mean, you can make a hundred percent. And if you only invest a thousand bucks, like yay, $2,000 doesn't mean anything. But if you're saving, it's a big deal. I think that's the point you were trying to, to go with. Absolutely. I think I think if I, if I can speculate here, I think that your average doctor is going to be a particularly intelligent person. Very right? intelligent. For this person, they're going to want to think, hey, saving my money, what the, what the heck is that? Why should I be bothered about that relative to you know, those other things? Like, I want to give my mind some, a challenge here. Don't give me a spreadsheet that I have to mindlessly follow for a, f- a couple of years in my budget. Give me an investment to analyze, hmm. right? Maybe that's probably more appealing, but the fact of the matter is you're absolutely right. Do the math. Go through the exercise of looking at the leverage points in your portfolio. Look at those four areas, right? Look at, can you increase your income dramatically? Can you lower your expenses dramatically? Can you achieve meaningful investment returns on your overall portfolio relative to your financial position? Can you create a business asset? And I think that your typical doctor is more often than not going to come to the conclusion, if they're looking at this logically, that, yeah, as much as it sucks, the savings rate is really the leverage point here. And why don't I figure out how to live a great life on a pretty good amount of money and still race toward financial freedom with the vast majority of mm-hmm. my earnings? I think that's the conclusion you're going to inevitably be forced to draw if you're looking at it from a high leverage point and you have a, a strong philosophy around your understanding of how money works in, in, in personal finance. Yeah. If you just remove the emotion behind it and you look at the math behind it, which everyone listening is brilliant, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. they, they can see this. Sometimes it's it's hard to acknowledge it when it's you and yep. when you add emotion into it, right? That's why behavioral finance um, is such a big deal in this. And your spouse, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you want to make sure that <laughs> Your spouse isn't a cash flow negative spouse, as you put it, right? <laughs> that they're on the same page. And we've talked with other people, several people on 
money dates and being aware of what your spouse is doing and and yourself and how to, to effectively communicate and how that's so important. Because if you are going in one direction and your spouse is going another, I don't care if it's male or female, if you're going in different directions, you have a hard road ahead of you for trying to hit that goal of financial independence. Yeah. So, so I mean, if, if we're going to summarize this, you know, it seems almost painfully simple are con- the conclusions that I've kind of yeah. come to in terms of my recommendations for how to think about things. But the hard part of all of this is becoming a doctor, right? I agree. The I hard agree. part is becoming a doctor. So you want to move toward financial freedom. Don't make that the hard part. Save your pennies. Enjoy your life because – you only, get, you only get one shot at this, but you can have a pretty good time if you're willing to not live in the 6,000 square foot house and instead live in the 1,800 square foot apartment that's reasonably close to work. Save the rest of the money. Apply that if your debt is high interest, you know, in that six, seven, eight percent range. Consider just paying it off. Mm-hmm. That's easy, right? Again, the hard part is being a doctor. The easy part is becoming rich. We, we hope, we hope, <laughs> yeah. and you know, obviously, with this podcast, with all sorts of other content that's out there, I talk about bigger pockets. Actually, Mindy was on the show; she was the first person I interviewed for the show, uh, which yeah. was super cool. We did a podcast movement. So, if you guys haven't listened to that one, it's the first show that I did with Mindy talking all about home ownership and how to buy a home. But there's so much good content out there, and you guys are doing bigger pockets money. Uh, which is an amazing show that everyone should be listening to. Well, let's take, sorry, I'm getting excited now. I'm yeah, getting, let's I, do it. But if you can tell, I had my coffee this morning, you know. Let's take this position and make it really hard okay. to move toward financial freedom, right? So if I want to make this as hard as possible to begin paying off my debt, what do I do with my first $250,000 salary and first fifty k in savings? Well, I go buy an $800,000 home. That is the single best step I can do to make to make financial freedom as far much farther out of reach than it was yesterday. Oh, and buy a Tesla. The second thing I could do is I could buy a Tesla, right? Right. And with eighty thousand dollars, put twenty thousand dollars down, right? Now I've just stacked on five thousand dollars a month, four to five thousand, somewhere in that range for between the mortgage and that car payment and expenses that I didn't have yesterday, right? Well, and now factor in your student debt that's going to raise from a couple hundred to twenty five hundred. All of a sudden, where where went that salary? But we were talking about the 80K you had to play with, right? Yeah, after, at, true. You're getting, yeah, right? yeah, they had to play with after. Yeah, yeah. Boom, all gone, right? All gone. Now I'm putting all this money into interest and principal reduction on my house, which I cannot deploy to produce cash flow or returns in excess of that kind of 3% annual appreciation rate that the housing market experiences. Mm-hmm. My car is a depreciating asset, so that's going to go down. I'm, I'm leveraged against the depreciating asset there, so I'm making that harder on me. And boom, it's all gone, Yeah. right? If you just don't buy the Tesla and don't buy the house or, you know, you can buy a house, but if you buy a house, you buy a really reasonable house. That's very, 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 very much within your limits. Boom. You coast toward financial freedom over a a pretty manageable amount of time, maybe Mm -hmm. less than a decade or 15 years at the max. If you're able to get a couple of raises in there, which would put them like in their mid to late forties. That's amazing, right? To do it as long as you take the steps off in the beginning. I think that's what I'd like to really come out of this show is just taking control early, paying attention, and not digging yourself into a giant hole. And if you are in a giant hole, get out of it ASAP. Work in the sooner the better because compounding can work with you or against you. Yep. I want to end this really quick with uh, the question I always ask is a curbside consult. And your book, and I know stuff on bigger pockets because I listened to both of those shows. I absolutely love them. Talk a lot about house hacking. So should physicians look at house hacking? And if they live in a place that duplexes or tries or quads 
aren't in very good areas of town, what do they move to? Townhomes? Like how does that how does that look? I'm a big fan of house hacking. I think it is a, a extremely effective way. When I house hacked, I was earning $50,000 a year and I had just saved up my first $20,000. So I was living on around $30,000 that year to save up for the purpose of house hacking, mm-hmm. right? I was able to put down $12,000 in a $240,000 property, right? That was not in the nicest area and begin biking to work, okay? That enabled me, instead of saving 30K the next year, to save like 45K, right? Which is a major difference to my position starting out there. All those numbers, as we just discussed, totally irrelevant to your your doctor earning $250,000 a year. 15K is nice. It's not nothing. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you're a doctor and you're considering a house hack, the financial benefits of it may not be worth the trade-off in lifestyle reduction costs Unless, you know, it's certainly better to buy a house hack than it is to buy a regular house. If you can buy a house that you're going to love to live in and happen to be able to rent out a couple of rooms to offset that cost by a large amount, that can be great, right? So it's not a yes or no answer here. I just think it's less critical to moving your financial position forward than it is to a $50,000 a year income earner who really that's one of few practical ways you can actually leapfrog your finances forward and dramatically cut your expenses back in order to begin to accelerate that savings rate for a median American. Again, not as necessary for a doctor earning huge amounts of money, but still a useful tactic that you could deploy, particularly in that first year or two, uh, that could be very effective. It might be a very good way to, for example, get through residency if you can figure out a way to, to house hack during that time and retain a cash flowing investment property, get your training wheels for real estate when the numbers really do make a difference in your day-to-day life during that period. Yeah. And most of the advice out there is like never buy a home in residency. You'll know where you'll end up. You'll know what you're doing. And primarily, I actually agree with that. But if you are in an area that you grew up in, your parents are there, you've, you know that it's going to be your end-all be-all type place and you were going to do this, I think it's definitely looking at an option of that if if you're up for it. But I think that's really interesting that from a trade-off standpoint, because I actually agree with that, you know, from a trade-off standpoint, it's a hard one. And I think if they just take control over their savings rate and their expenses and not letting everything go crazy in the first few years, and they just do some very prudent investing and just understanding what they're doing, you know, I think they'll they'll be set. So Scott, for like, I don't think there's a soul on the planet that if they are interested in real estate, hasn't heard of bigger pockets, but <laughs> for the people that maybe aren't necessarily interested, but now you've piqued their interest, tell them about what you're doing there and your, your podcast, your book, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, so bigger pockets is a community of about 1.2 million uh, investors. Oh, that's it. And if you- <laughs> yeah. And if you come on bigger pockets, what you'll see is you'll see a, a forum, for example, where people are debating the best way to do things. Like, should I get, should I uh, allow a dog in this rental? Should I allow a cat? How much should I charge? Should I invest here? Should I invest there? And you'll see opinions that are generated by other investors giving you feedback there. And so that's kind of a really good way to get uh, specific thoughts about investing in specific areas fleshed out amongst peers uh, in those areas. We also have a couple of podcasts. We have the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, which I host. It's more of a personal finance podcast, mm-hmm. preparing you to build a position, a financial position that's capable of, among other things, making serious financial investments in real estate. And then, of course, our the Bigger Pockets podcast, where we interview investors, usually who have done ten or more deals, and they talk about how they actually are building a significant real estate portfolio and business, uh, and how they got started. So, a lot of different perspective. There is no one right way to do this. We could go down the whole path you were mentioning earlier about should you invest in appreciating market or a cash flow market, and the answer is both or neither. People are making money all day long. There's guys that uh, get wiped out in the appreciating markets and they crash, and then there's guys who are laughing at everybody 
everybody else over the last 30 years who invested in San Francisco. Yeah. They've been saying, hey, you can't do it. So there's no there's no right answer. The answer is you got to assess the odds for yourself and figure out what makes sense given your position and what the trade-offs you're willing to make. People are making money in all different types of investments all over their country. And you'll hear all of those stories on bigger pockets. Yeah. And you have a book, Set for Life, that I know we've discussed on the podcast previously, but it's an awesome book. It is geared for that fifty, sixty thousand dollar income, but I think it is actually very, very, very relevant for the residents that are going through that are earning that and giving them a different mind shift or a mindset change. It's all about mindset in these early years. And I I love the book and what you're doing there. I love it. Yeah. I'd hope that that would be helpful to residents. And I hope that also that if you read that book and you're becoming a doctor, that you understand what you need to apply and what you don't relative to the the way that that works and why that's effective for a $50,000 a year income earner and everybody and what parts maybe are less less impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, so. it's, you make it pretty straightforward. So I, I'd highly recommend the book. Scott, thank you so much for being on. It's such an honor to have you here and to have now both you and Mindy, both of the the Bigger Pockets Money hosts. It's awesome. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Ryan. It was awesome to be here. Today, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on our site, financialresidency.com, titled 2019 Contribution Limits and the Changes Impacting Your Retirement. I want to highlight this article as it's really informative for some of the changes that are happening in 2019 that you need to be aware of. First, the IRS adjusted the maximum contribution to your 401k, most 457s, and TSP plan from $18,500 to $19,000 annually for 2019. And in case of your curious why, the amounts are adjusted as necessary to keep up with rising inflation. At this point, you may be wondering about your IRAs. Did those see an increase as well? Well, the good news, yes. So the past five years, you've been allowed to put basically $5,500 annually into an IRA. Whether traditional or Roth depends on your income limits, but for the sake of this, $5,500 annually in an IRA. For 2019, the new maximum contribution also increased to $6,000 and applies to both traditionals and Roth. I also cover some of the differences between a 457 and your 401k or 403b. One of those differences is that a 457 plan is typically offered by local or state public employers, as well as some from the nonprofit sector. This is the type of employer-sponsored plan that you will have or typically see in a nonprofit hospital as well. Another difference between the 457 plans and your 401k or 403b is that you do not have the early withdrawal penalty if you take money out prior to age 59 and a half. That could be a big advantage depending on your financial circumstances, but something I wouldn't typically recommend. Lastly, I go into some of the benefits and advantages of an IRA, traditional and Roth. And an IRA is short for an individual retirement account. Think of an IRA account as a type of savings account, but with tax advantages. All of the income you earn from an IRA through mutual funds, stocks, bonds, can grow without having taxes taken out. It's pretty cool. These accounts are subject to the IRS guidelines and 2019 contribution limits, just like all the other types of accounts. IRAs are divided up into two categories, let's say. One is traditional, the other is Roth. Each one is distinct and, like other types of plans, offer various tax incentives that you really need to understand. And in this article, I go through a lot of it, but 
There are quite a few details when it comes to comparing the two types of IRAs, but I'll just give you a general overview. So traditional IRAs allow you to take advantage of the tax deductions when you make the contribution. You would then pay taxes when you withdraw the funds for retirement or whatever date you're targeting after age 59 and a half. Roth IRAs offer a tax advantage when you withdraw the money. The idea is that if you are in a lower tax bracket when you retire, then you are contributing throughout the years. You will, however, have to pay taxes on the contributions up front. There are income and eligibility requirements that you're going to need to verify all the details, and I've listed out a lot of those in the article. So go check it out. It's posted at financialresidency.com. This was a jammed pack episode of real financial situations for physicians like you. Scott and I talked through how anyone coming out of residency with a ton of debt can still achieve financial independence. And let's do a quick recap of the show's highlights. On average, at least with my clients, they rack up about $280,000 of student debt. Added to that is probably an added average 15,000 of consumer debt as they leave training. If this is you, Don't worry, keep listening, keep reading all about personal finance. You might feel like you're so far in the hole, you're never going to be able to get yourself out, but don't worry, it is possible. As Scott said, we reviewed the four pillars of wealth creation. Pillar one is spending as little as practically as possible to finance the life you need. Need was the important word there. The second is generating a large earned income. Third, investing your accumulated assets for greater investment returns. And the fourth is entrepreneurship or the creation of assets with the goal of producing passive income in excess of your lifestyle needs. Debt is obviously a big issue. And when you move into residency, you're making about 50, 60,000 a year. You're more than likely not even paying the full payment on your debt. And at this point, it's really hard for you to invest. So you can't get a large return on your invested assets, of course. So your path forward, at least for the initial few years, is very straightforward. Simply spend at a level you earn as a resident to pay off the debt to accumulate a meaningful amount of equity. And being smart about how much money you invest is going to keep you from making bad financial decisions and help you make interesting move towards that passive income. As far as adding income producing property, you need to get educated and then go for a stable property in a reasonable area. And according to Scott, he used to buy value-added properties, like the worst one on the block, where he could come in and fix it up, put a tenant in there, and then ride the wave over the next few years. But as he said in there, his perspective has changed, and he's got a little bit more money to play with now, and so he's looking for properties in more stable areas. There's all sorts of deals for everyone. Make sure you do tons of due diligence before you buy anything. The understanding for all of you, all the physicians listening, is that you have the capacity to live really in the upper income of American life and still save 50, 75,000 or more every year. So for a very long time, your investments are simply not going to be the driver of your portfolio, which everyone thinks it is, but it's totally not accurate. So the idea here is how do you apply that as passively as possible? Ultimately, and as Scott said, If you're going to go into real estate as a doctor, play the long game, have the right mindset and approach. And this is going to allow you to scale into some maybe larger commercial properties down the line, but it all starts with mindset. If you want to hear more about investing in larger real estate deals passively, 
check out the show I did, actually two shows now that I've done with Vina Jetty to understand how those deals work and how to maybe get started. After the show, how confident are you in achieving financial freedom? I hope you're a little closer to realizing how accessible it is. And I'd love for you to drop a line in the Facebook group, financialresidency.com slash community, and let us know what you learned from the show. Hey everyone, listen up real quick. As your host of the Financial Residency Podcast, I'm not an attorney, a psychic, nor do I play one on TV. I'm glad you're here to learn and get excited about your finances. There's no purchase necessary to win, but you do need to understand your money decisions should not be taken lightly and should be talked through with someone knowledgeable about your situation. That person isn't me, unless you're already a client, then it's a totally different story. So consult your attorney, CPA, or heck me, a family financial planner, to help you get on your feet the right way. Really hope you guys enjoyed this week's show. Remember to check out the Money Care Specialist podcast in the same podcast player that you're listening to me right now in and get some practical knowledge in how to apply everything you've been learning here to your financial life. Have a great week. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.